you're seated. Well, it is the 27th day of the second month. A year more has gone by. The ark has come to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the earth is now dry. The waters have subsided, but Noah and his family and all the animals are still on the ark. And the question is now what? What happens next? And to answer that question, I want to look at three uh, movements here. The three movements are this. First, God speaks. Second, Noah responds. And number three, lastly, God makes a promise. First, God speaks. In Genesis 8, verse 1, we are told that God remembers Noah. The ark is stopped, and the mountains landed, and God remembers Noah. But now in verse 15, we find that God speaks to Noah. And understand this, it's more than likely that this is the first time that God has spoken to Noah since before the flood, since the time that Noah got onto the ark. That during this entire year of where the entire planet is being flooded, there is no record of God speaking to Noah. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to think that in these situations that God is just in constant communication with somebody like Noah, or Noah is in constant communication with God. He has this hotline to God, and he hears from God all the time, but that is not the case. Noah and his family are on this giant ark with all these animals, with water raging all around them, and as far as we know, there is no word from God until now in Genesis 15. What does God say? Well, verse 16, he says, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives. The first thing that God instructs Noah to do is for him and his family to come out of the ark. The time has come after months and months of waiting. The time to come to exit the ark has finally come. And what we find is that those who entered the ark successfully survived the storms and were delivered intact by the mercy of God. And it's wild to think that at this time, These are the only eight people on planet Earth. That all of the rest of human civilization has been wiped away, and all that remains is Noah and his family. God also tells Noah in verse 17, bring out all the living creatures that are with you, the birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth. Why? And they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on it. That God instructs Noah to bring out all the animals that you brought onto the ark. It's time for them to come off of the ark so that they may be fruitful and multiply. And what God is doing here is he's reissuing the creation mandate, the mission of humanity that God had given man at creation in the garden to be fruitful and multiply. Earlier, Noah is instructed to bring all the animals onto the ark two by two to preserve their life. And now he is to send them out to be fruitful and multiply. There's this start of a new creation. And this doesn't just apply to the animals, but also to Noah and his family, as we'll see next week in Genesis chapter 9. But from these eight people, the rest of the world would be populated. And so God, God instructs Noah to come out of the ark. Number two is Noah responds. The second movement, Noah responds. Well, what is Noah's response to God? Well, there's two responses I want to look at here this morning. The first is this, he obeys God. First, he obeys God, verse 18. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the the earth came out of the ark by their families. God tells Noah, Noah, it's time to leave. It's time to come out of the ark. And what we find Noah doing is he opens up the doors of the ark, and he, his family, and all the animals that are with him step foot onto the dry ground. Now, it's easy to sterilize, I think, this event or events like this. And what I mean by that is that we don't really stop and take in the emotions or the feelings, the thoughts that would have, uh, what it would have been like to be Noah and his family. 
Or at least I don't tend to do that very often. I tend just to kind of read the story and move on. I don't necessarily sit in it and really contemplate, what would have this been like? I mean, just think about this. You you board this ark, and you're on this ark for a year or so, water raging around you, the entire earth flooded. Everyone you knew is gone. All the animals, except for the animals on the ark with you, gone. Gone. And imagine what it would be like to step out of the ark for the first time. You put your foot onto dry ground after a year plus of it being flooded. And you begin your descent down the mountain. You think, what would you see? What would have this picture been like? I mean, you think about a flood. A flood can have catastrophic effects. I mean, just look at some pictures of the after effects of floods we have here. A whole road is taken out. Or the next picture, you have these cars that are stashed, I guess, under this bridge of some sort. Next one, you have a truck that's in a sinkhole or mud hole. And next one is this woman who's cleaning her house, you know, her whole home devastated by a flood. There would have been wreckage and debris. It seems like to be reasonable that there may have been dead animals, uh, dead bodies of humans piled around laying there. I don't exactly know, but the flood would have had forever drastically changed the landscape of the earth. It drastically changed the landscape of the earth. And probably with that is mixed in this, this new life. You know, there's, there's trees that are growing and, and grass that is sprouting or whatever it may be, that there's this new life happening amidst the destruction and the death. And imagine what you would have felt like as you're stepping into this, quote, this new world. I'm sure there's this mixture of emotions. You know, if you've ever been to somewhere new for the first time, I remember when I traveled to uh, Barcelona, Spain for the first time, and you kind of step into this new place, and there's this excitement And there's this worry and fear, but there's this anticipation of what is going to happen. What is it going to be like? What are you going to experience? I'm sure Noah felt all of these emotions and maybe more, this excitement, worry, fear, anticipating what is life going to be like now. Noah has no home to go back to, no civilization to go back to. It's just him and his family. And regardless of what Noah is feeling and experiencing, what we find is that Noah obeys God. He comes out of the ark. And this is the pattern of Noah's life. It's to do what God instructs him to do. He obeyed God by building the ark. He obeyed God by getting on the ark with the animals. And Noah obeys God by staying on the ark until God tells him when to leave. Noah is a man who obeys God. And when I think about obedience, there's one particular truth that comes to my mind I think that's helpful to process or to to know when it comes to obeying God. And here's this truth. Obedience to God leads to blessing. When you think about obedience, what comes to your mind? When you think about obeying God, how how do you think about it? What comes to the forefront of your mind? Do you think, man, this is going to be a drag on my life? Just a killjoy, God is just going to ruin, there's no more fun, no more pleasure, no more exciting experiences, my life is just kind of over, and I just kind of do what God tells me to do because I just know that's what I'm supposed to do, type of attitude. Or you just balk at God. But when you think about obedience, what you should think about is blessing. What you should think about is the blessing of God. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist writes, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. And what is he like as a result? He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams 
that bear its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Or Psalm 119, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all of their heart. Where does happiness and blessing come from? Walking with God. Walking in obedience to the instruction of God. The Bible over and over again communicates this idea. We look into the culture, the culture says, no, 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 where happiness comes from is doing what you want when you want. That's not true. In fact, many of us know that just from experience, but where true happiness, peace, joy come from is walking in obedience to Christ. I mean, think about Noah. He escaped the flood waters of judgment. Rather than sitting with the mockers and the scoffers, with the sinners of the time who perished in the judgment of the flood, Noah is alive. He's with God. And he's going to be used by God to repopulate the entire earth. Now, this doesn't mean that obedience to God won't be hard. Sure, it will be hard. Of course, it will be hard. Anytime we obey, it's oftentimes hard. But look at Noah's life. Noah's life wasn't easy. I'm sure it wasn't easy to build an ark for, you know, 100 years or whatever it was with people mocking, scoffing at him to get on the ark, to live on the ark then with his family for a year or whatever it might be with all these animals. But yet what you find is there is great blessing and joy. That no matter even circumstantially what's happening, when we are walking in obedience to Christ, when you walk in obedience to Christ, even if the world, so to speak, is falling down around you, there's this contentment, there's this peace. And what Jesus promises in John 14 is that when we walk in obedience to him, that he reveals himself to us, that there's something that happens in obedience, a deeper, closer relationship with Christ. Blessing. When we think of obedience, we should think of blessing. But there's a second thing that Noah does. Not only does he obey God, but he also, number two, makes offerings to God. In verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal, every kind of clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The first action that we're given about Noah after he gets out of the ark is he builds an altar. And upon the altar, he makes offerings to God. Now, what are we told about these offerings? Well, first we're told this. Noah specifically offered some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird. What does it mean by clean animal? Well, it's one of every mammal that chewed the cud. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with chewing the cud, uh, but it's like a cow, chews grass, swallows it, regurgitates it, chews it some more, swallows it, regurgitates it. It makes you really hungry after you think about it, right? If you're like, I want to go eat some lunch now. And they possess split hooves, as well as one representative of every kind of bird that did not eat decaying flesh. So you think about this, okay, all these animals, this would have been an impressive sacrifice. But what I want you to notice is this, is it probably was a costly sacrifice. It cost him something. He, Noah, is taking the only animals that we're aware of that are left on the planet, and he's offering them to God. As Spurgeon said, common sense would have said, spare them, for you will want every one of them. That's the common sense. We should just keep these all to ourselves. But what Noah does isn't just keep them. Instead, he offers them. He freely offers them to the Lord. Second, when it comes to the offerings, we're told that the offerings were burned. They were burned. They weren't just put to death on the altar and blood out, but they were actually burned or completely incinerated. 
Now, why does that matter? What is the significance of that? Well, there's a picture, something being communicated here. The picture is the total giving of oneself. That as these offerings are being burned and they are incinerated, Noah was indicating, in effect, that all my life is yours, God. Everything I have belongs to you. It's this picture of complete devotion to God. Now, why? Why would Noah offer burnt offerings to God? Why would he present this picture of complete devotion to the Lord? Well, I think it's quite simple. Noah's life was just spared. The world around him was destroyed. All of human civilization put to death, ruined. And yet Noah, his wife and his sons and their wives, are alive. And you gotta think, if you are Noah, you're sitting in this position where your life is spared while everyone in the rest of the world has been destroyed, has been put to death. How grateful would you be How thankful would you be to be alive, to survive the judgment of God? And see, what Noah is doing is out of gratitude, out of gratitude for what God has done for him, he offers these burnt offerings, these animals. His life had been spared. And the immediate response then of Noah, after God rescued him, rescued him and his family, is to offer these sacrifices to celebrate and to thank God for the salvation that he's been given. That God spared his life. In other words, what Noah is doing is he is worshiping God. This is a picture of worship, freely offering ourselves to God. Noah doing so through sacrifices, this joyous act of worship to God, the only thing that makes sense in light of what God had just done for him. And so Noah makes these sacrifices, but what we find is that God responds to these burnt offerings. How? What does God do? Well, number three is this. God makes a promise. In verse 21, it says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, Something happens as Noah is burning the animals and the birds. The Lord smells the offering, the smoke of the offering ascends to the nostrils of God, so to speak. And what happens when God smells the offering? He's pleased. He's pleased by what he smells. Or another way to translate this is to say that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. The soothing aroma of the sacrifices. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of soothing aroma. I don't know if it's, you know, grilling in the summertime or if it's scentsy candles that you burn around your house. I don't know what it is. You know, people get oil, they put them in diffusers, they get candles and they light them. And part of why we do that is because it's soothing. People are soothed by it, are pacified. And you think about what is going on here is the same idea. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma that God is soothed or pacified by the sacrifices of Noah had this pacifying effect on God. And so in response, God says, I will never again curse the ground of the human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. What does God promise? Well, in essence, this, to never destroy the world again through a flood. 
This is the pledge. He's not going to destroy the world again through the flood. And we see this expanded on more next week in Genesis chapter 9 when God makes an official covenant with Noah to never flood the earth again. But this is God's response to the sacrifices that Noah is making. Now, the promise is not, 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 it does not mean that there won't be natural disasters, right? But the world would not be destro- destroyed by a flood. And so in one sense, Noah's offering was not only in celebration and out of gratitude for what God had done for him, but also it was atoning. It served as an atoning sacrifice for the sin of humanity. The Noah stands in this position as a mediator between God and the rest of humanity. And when God smells the aroma of the sacrifices, he is pleased. He is soothed. And he responds by saying, I will never destroy humanity with a flood again. Now, I'm going to draw your attention to two truths about this promise that are important. First is this, the promise won't change the human heart. God's promise to never destroy the world again through flood will not change the human heart. Verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. You know, if you were to ask the average person, how would you describe humanity? Would you describe humanity as basically good or evil? How would you answer? Well, country singer Luke Bryan, he answers that question for us. And I just have to let you know, I don't listen to country unless I'm like tied down and I have to listen to it. And it involves my wife just turning it on in the car, essentially. I don't listen to country. But here's what <clears throat> the prophet Luke Bryan says. <laughs> I'm just, I'm joking, obviously. I believe kids ought to stay kids as long as they can, turn off the screen, go climb a tree, get dirt on their hands. I believe we ought to forgive, or got to forgive and make amends, because nobody gets a second chance to make new old friends. I believe in working hard for what you've got, even if it don't add up to a hell of a lot. I believe most people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. Probably true. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I don't know about that one. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. And the song goes on and on and on to say most people are good. This would be the common answer if you were to ask the average person, what do you believe about humanity? Is humanity basically good? or evil. And what's even more scary is this is what most, many Christians believe. Many people who claim Christ, they would say, no, humanity is basically good. There's a few bad apples, there's Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Osama bin Laden, whichever president you hate. Like, there's a few bad people. But, humanity is basically good. This is the mindset about humanity. But this is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach the human heart is basically good. In fact, look again what God says. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. The direction of the human heart goes away from God. Not toward God, it goes away from God, in fact, towards evil. And there is no neutral position. It's not like people sit in this neutral state where they just have, they don't hate God, they don't love God, they're just in neutrality. There is no neutral place 
You either love God or you hate God. And what's true about all of humanity, until someone becomes a believer in Christ, is you hate God. You are evil. Now, you may not describe yourself that way. You may not think of yourself that way. But God looks at humanity and he knows the human heart. And the human heart is evil from youthward on. And this truth is throughout Scripture. Psalm 51, David writes, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Romans 1.21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Ephesians 2, describing humanity, describing us before we came to, became followers of Christ, and you were dead. He's talking, Paul is writing, and you, church, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. And we could go on and on. This is the human condition All of humanity sits in this space. And this fact about the human condition is so important to understand. One that we cannot be ignorant about. Why? Well, because when you lack understanding or you're ignorant about something, your ignorance or lack of understanding can lead you to do things you may not otherwise do or to not do things that you should do. It leads you to do things you shouldn't do, and it leads you to do things maybe you should not do. That There's this ignorance or understanding, and it affects how we live. When we don't understand something, it can mess up our life. You think about just sex in our country. Think about how the, the country, the, the civilization, society, the world, what it says about sex... Sex is just a sport, an activity, something that brings you pleasure. If you don't understand what God says about sex, you're likely just to then think that sex is some activity that's just about bringing you pleasure. But as someone commented, when you're an adult, ignorance is bliss today means you have an STD tomorrow. When you're ignorant about what sex is, it can wreak havoc on your life. It'll cause you to do things you should not do. And likewise, when it comes to the state of the human condition, the human heart, if we are wrong, have wrong understanding, or we are ignorant about the human condition, then a number of things can happen. I'm just going to give you two. First is this. We won't feel our need for Christ. You won't feel your need for Jesus. This is why Jesus just becomes another good teacher in part. We, we, we have this sense of, yeah, Jesus is good, but I, I don't feel my need. If someone does not understand that they are totally depraved, that they live in rebellion to God, and they're worthy of eternal separation from God in hell. They will not feel their need for Christ, and there's nothing they can do about it. That the only thing that can save them is Christ. They won't feel that need, or we won't feel the need to share the gospel of Christ. 
that if we look at humanity as basically good, we will not enter into difficult conversations. We might say things like, yeah, Jesus came and you know, he, <clears throat> he died or whatever. We kind of just kind of float. We don't get into sin. And say, so, no, 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 see, you're not, you haven't just done like some wrong. You are evil before God. The inclination of your heart is evil. The issue isn't that you just have done wrong things, which is true. But you as a person, your heart is wicked. It's wicked. If we don't see that, then oftentimes we will not step into uncomfortable conversations. So being ignorant of the human condition can lead to a number of problems. But the second truth then is this, is this promise won't change God's promise of a future judgment. Then we look at this promise, not only will it not change the human heart, God is not confused. He knows that even though he's making this promise, the human heart won't change, this promise also won't change God's promise of a future judgment. Verse 22 says, as long as the earth endures. This statement, while it shows permanency for the world, it also infers something. It infers that the present heavens and earth will someday pass away. And in fact, what the New Testament clearly teaches is just that. God promises there is a day coming when the world will be destroyed and the ungodly will be judged. And it won't be with water. This time it will be with fire. Peter writes, above all, beware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he's promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. Then he says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. What is going to happen? There is a day coming when the heavens and earth will be destroyed. It's being kept for a day of judgment, a day in which the ungodly will stand before God and give an account for their life. And those who are ungodly, have, who have rejected God, walking in obedience to God, they will be judged, and the judgment is eternal destruction. Death. There is a judgment coming. So what can change? What can change the human heart and rescue us from the judgment to come? Because this promise doesn't change the human heart. It doesn't stop us from being judged. It doesn't, it doesn't rescue someone from the coming judgment. So what can change the human heart and rescue us from the judgment to come? Well, as we know, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus. Jesus can transform the human heart, and he can rescue us from the wrath to come. Look what Ephesians 5, what Paul writes about Jesus. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Notice that term, fragrant offering. Think about Noah's offering. 
Like the sacrifices of Noah, the sacrifice of Jesus soothed the anger of God. The Noah's sacrifices, they soothed or they pacified God's anger. The aroma was pleasing to him. Jesus, though, much more so, the sacrifice of his own life pacified the anger of God against sin. The Jesus who knew no sin became sin. The Jesus died in our place to pay the punishment for humanity's sin. And Jesus, likewise, at the same time, not only soothes the anger of God, but Jesus transforms the human heart to be inclined towards God. Jesus does something that no one else can do. He changes you from the inside out. And this is prophesied about in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel writes, speaking for the Lord, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities, all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. That Ezekiel said there's a day coming, a day coming when something would happen is that the human heart would be changed. The human heart would be transformed from this heart of stone and rebellion and hatred towards God to a heart of flesh, a heart that desires and yearns for God. And the human being will have the spirit of God in them, in him, in her, in order to obey God. But when does this happen? When does a person experience this transformation? What we are told in the New Testament is someone repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Paul tells us in Ephesians, when you believe, when you heard the word of your salvation and you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in you and you were born again, Jesus says in John chapter three, and you are a new creation and you have a new heart. The Spirit of God dwells in you, moving you, causing you to want to follow God. It's through Jesus. And so brothers and sisters, what should we do? How should we respond? Well, there's plenty of things we could say, but just one, how should we respond? With joyous surrender and complete devotion to Jesus. How did Noah respond to the flood? To getting off the ark? To being spared from the judgment of God? With complete devotion with this joyous surrender. And Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 12. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, the mercies of God, think about the mercies of God for a moment. Paul lists them throughout Romans. Here's just a few that God has spared you from his coming wrath through Jesus' sacrifice. That through Jesus' sacrifices, your sins are forgiven, that you are no longer condemned, you are cleansed. You are no longer guilty. That you are born again. That you've been given a new heart. You're not just been. You're not just. Uh, you're not just changed on the outside, but you're changed on the inside. 
that God's spirit is placed in you. As Paul says in Romans, that the love of God has been poured out in you. And that you have his spirit who cries out to God as Abba, Father. That in view of God's mercy, that he has spared you from his wrath, Paul says, I urge you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That Paul says, you should offer a sacrifice to God as a result of what he's done for you. And what is that sacrifice? You. You, me. In other words, it's your life. It's your life, a living sacrifice, not a dead one, not a burnt offering of animals or of yourself or whatever, but a living sacrifice that your life, that you would joyfully surrender and completely devote your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, nothing else makes sense. Like Noah, what made sense after he escaped judgment because of God's mercy as he offers sacrifice, sacrifices to God, and so it does with us. A life surrendered to God is what makes sense if we believe that God has graciously spared us from his wrath to come. Complete devotion to him. That God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect, he says in Romans 12. And we see that good, pleasing, perfect will carried out in the cross. That we've been beneficiaries of God's will that his son would come and die in our place to pay for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God, that we might live forever with him. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to do that. God, we thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, that we are new creations and your spirit lives in us, causing us to want to know you, to pursue you. So God, we ask for grace to be a people who would just joyfully surrender to you that seeing that walking with you is the best possible thing in life. Lord, we ask that you'd help us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.